This is the Mathematics Education Podcast from MathEdPodcast.com. I'm Jeremy Strayer from Middle Tennessee State University. Today I'm going to share a conversation I had with Dr. Susan Elrod, Provost and Executive Vice Chancellor for Academic Affairs at the University of Wisconsin-Whitewater. Susan recently gave a keynote address at the Mathematics Teacher Education Partnership held in Denver, Colorado in June of 2018. Before we get to Dr. Elrod's address, let me share some information about the MTE Partnership's aims. There are two. First, the partnership seeks to create a gold standard to document that secondary mathematics education graduates are capable of providing ambitious instruction and deep learning compelled by the Common Core State Standards for Mathematics and other college and career-ready standards. The second aim is to increase the number of graduating secondary mathematics teachers by 40%, with an emphasis on increasing diversity. This seventh annual conference for the Mathematics Teacher Education Partnership focused on issues of equity, transformation, and leadership. Dr. Elrod has expertise in researching institutional change, and because that expertise has such value in helping the partnership think about transforming programs that prepare secondary mathematics teachers, it was the focus of her keynote. I will share audio from Susan's address, which happened over dinner, so you will hear dishes rattling and so forth, as well as audio from a follow-up phone conversation that we shared. Let's start with Susan explaining the project and the resulting model that she developed that describes important aspects of instituting systemic change. I started this project with my colleague Adriana Kizar about five or six years ago. And what we did was we enlisted about 11 institutions in California, public and private, research, comprehensive, liberal arts, and we asked them to embark on this sort of institutional change project, and then we worked with them through that period. And then in the end, in a very kind of grassroots way, looked back and said, what would have been helpful to you? And that's where the model came from. We call it the river model, and the reason we chose a river to represent this model is because change is not linear, it's not simple. You can run into rapids. There are rocks in the river, which are shown there where you see the arrows going around, where you might eddy, eddy out or eddy around. You have any rafters in the river. You can kind of like get swirl around in the river. In the end, you can get out and hike back to the beginning and, and run the whole thing over again. The river model consists of five major components. When I look at the model, which you can find a link to in the show notes, I see two major turns in the river. The first turn entails three components establishing a vision that is appropriate to your context and aligned with institutional priorities, identifying challenges and opportunities, and choosing a strategy to implement based on the team's readiness. I asked Susan to help us understand what these pieces may look like in practice for faculty who are seeking to institute change regarding a specific mathematics-related project. So, We framed our discussion around an example of a team seeking to improve student success in the pre-calculus through Calculus II sequence at their university. In this context, here's how she described navigating the first portion of the river. So, you know, one of the reasons that we developed the model was to help 
people doing exactly this, working on a, a problem or an issue and help them engage in more institutional level kinds of approaches that might facilitate their success. Not that a department couldn't do this on their own, and you know that's certainly great if they do, but the idea is that there are more resources and there's more power behind it if teams can engage a broader stakeholder group across the campus. So in the case of revamping the calculus sequence, clearly if students do better in calculus, they're going to progress through their majors, they're going to stay in school. So in the language of institutional student success, they're going to be retained at higher rates and then maybe graduate at higher rates. So this particular departmental level focus connects in institutionally to what the institution probably already has as goals for retention and graduation of its students. This kind of work might also connect in with goals that relate to improving the success of underrepresented minority students or underprepared students. And so I think one thing that a team might think about is how does their work in calculus reform connect to key institutional goals and priorities? Another reason for helping departments connect into institutional goals and priorities is there's frequently funding and other kinds of support that come along with that. So, you know, if we're thinking about then what the vision might be, you know, the group might get together, find uh, folks in the Dean of Undergraduate Studies Office or the Advising Center or folks across the campus who would resonate with improving student retention and progression and, and graduation. And, and it could come up with a vision for what that would look like. So more students are going to be successful in majors and programs that require calculus as a prerequisite or a co-requisite of some kind. And so that may not sound like all that lofty of a vision, but more of a goal statement. But that's, that's a pretty good place to start because the ultimate vision there would be that, that the university would improve its retention and graduation rates maybe close some of its equity gaps. Mm -hmm. So that would be how I would um, help a group think about how their work in calculus reform could, could be tied to and connect to a larger university vision. And if we continue to the next part of that, in order to help develop the vision, looking at retention data. So here's where you engage your institutional research office in asking for what are the D, F, and W rates for these calculus courses, and then disaggregate that data. Who's not passing? And then you can, you know, you kind of follow the data around to, to get a better understanding of the problem. Because it could be that you could leverage, for example, a new student seminar or something that's going on in your tutorial center that might help you with that particular aspect of the problem. So getting the data around the problem helps you focus in on just exactly what might be causing the problem because ultimately then the next, you know, as you move through down the river, the idea is that you use that data to help you pinpoint particular strategies that are going to be important. So, for example, it could be that the data reveals that students who are in, in certain majors are having more trouble in calculus than others and you might be able to trace that back to some coursework in the major or prerequisites. Right. And then you might also then start looking at what are some models of 
of other institutions who've changed their calculus courses and what impact has that had? So that those are kind of some thought processes that are involved in the first part of the river model. As teams navigate the components of the first turn in the river in their attempts to bring about systemic change, the process can be fraught with many potential pitfalls. Thinking with the calculus example again for context, I asked Susan to identify some of those potential difficulties. I can think of three immediately. And the first is not paying up enough attention to developing a shared vision with your colleagues. If you go around the room in a group who's working on something like this and ask them what their goal and vision might be, it may be different for everyone. And until everybody gets on the same page, you can't possibly achieve the same desired outcome. So it's really important to take the time to talk with everybody who's involved about what they think the vision and the goal should be. What is it that we're really going to accomplish? And then what does that success look like? How are we going to know that we've been successful? And so that leads to the second pitfall, moving ahead without actually good data about what the problem is. Sometimes data is hard to get on a campus, and I understand that. So this is where you have to reach out to your institutional research office, ask the dean, figure out how to get to the right sources, because there is data, there is capacity on most campuses. And so I think another pitfall that teams run into is because the data is hard to get, they just don't get it and they move on. And they end up creating a solution to a problem that doesn't exist or to the wrong problem and not a solution to the problem that it that really they're trying to solve because they didn't actually fully understand it. I think the third pitfall is that it's super easy just to do something that you read about from another institution that was successful. You know, you're reading in the literature, you're at a conference, you have colleagues at a neighboring institution, or you're in a system and someone else did something and they had some success. So it's really easy without looking at your own campus data or coming up with a shared vision to just implement something. And a lot of campuses do this, a lot of departments and programs, and they find that they don't have success because maybe that solution wasn't right for their context. And here's the example that I give frequently. Summer bridge programs are very popular and they take different shapes and forms. Some of them are a month long, Some of them, uh, more and more now, are shorter because what people figured out was that those month-long summer bridge programs were were created by colleges and universities where their students didn't have to work in the summer. So students could come and do that, or they had the resources to pay them to be there for that summer bridge program. Mm. But at an urban university where, or, or a rural university where students you know, for example, here in Wisconsin, our, our students, you know, work on the family farm in the summer. They can't spend that month. So you can't just take something and implement it on your campus. You have to examine what that program might be and its outcomes are, and are those aligned with your problem, your population, to give you the outcomes that you want. So I think the third pitfall is just implementing something for the sake of doing something You know, like, that's better than nothing, and it it may actually be worse. Once a strategy is chosen, it's time to implement it. I see this as the second big turn in the river model. It includes the components of beginning the implementation, measuring results, and disseminating results and planning next steps. When I asked Dr. Elrod to sketch out for us what this might look like in our calculus example, 
she jumped straight to the potential pitfalls. The pitfall is to just do something on a large scale without knowing whether or not it's the right thing, it's going to have the impact you want, or that you're even prepared or ready to implement it appropriately. In the publication that describes the river model, we have a readiness survey that helps people think about a lot of different components, primarily infrastructural, that you need to think about when you're planning something different or new. It's also important to pilot it in a small scale. Don't do all sections of a course at one time. Mm-hmm. And that, that may be obvious to people, but you know, pilot it in a one section. That gives you not only a control group to compare, but it also lets you test out the bugs of whatever it is you're trying to do on a smaller scale so that hopefully it's successful, but if it's not, it, it doesn't have as big of a problematic impact as it might if you just went, you know, 10 sections versus one mm-hmm. to try something out. And, and I would say also when implementing, make sure in advance, you know, how you're going to know whether or not it had the impact that you wanted it to. It goes back to that question of how are you going to measure success? More students passing the course, more students getting um, more questions right on a culminating exam, more students progressing to the second semester. You know, what, what are the measures that you're going to use and have those in place in advance? Let's say a team is ready with a great plan. The vision is aligned with the university's institutional plan. It makes sense with regard to context and available resources. It's aimed at overcoming a specific challenge and a plan for measuring success has been identified. Still, as everybody knows, implementation is messy. Things never go precisely according to plan. So, here are some of Susan's reflections on handling difficult moments that can occur during implementation. So let's say, um, and this certainly happens, you change up your pedagogy and student learning is worse. Students did not do better, either the same as, or maybe they didn't do as well. And so when that happens, then you've got to step back and look at, well, what did we really do? Did we have the right approach? Did we implement effectively? What were some of the problems that we might have encountered? I think it's always important to get student feedback on things you're changing in a course. And also to include students up front to tell them what your, you know, what your logic is. Hey, in this course this semester, we're testing out some new ideas about pedagogy. Here's our thinking. Here's why we think this is going to work better. And so we, we hope that you'll be part of this with us and help us understand the results. Sometimes students can provide really great insights. So I would say not to be discouraged, be flexible, be adaptable. Don't, don't be afraid to really look closely at, at what you've done and to also hear the feedback of your colleagues. You know, have people observing and create an environment where it's okay to take a risk and fail. And, but then there's a community of people to pick you up and help you move on. And, and sometimes you need to take a break. You know, that river diagram um, is meant to also help people think, you know, sometimes you just need to get out of the river and just rest and have a, a picnic or take a nap, you know, before you keep going because it can be exhausting work. So also I would say don't be afraid to just take a break Maybe a a new person's coming into the department in the fall and you're like, you know what, we're going to wait for fresh eyes. Mm. 
to come and look at what we've been doing. So I, I would say that those are some suggestions for how to move forward if you don't have something that maybe worked out how you wanted it to. Now, one thing that Susan's work makes clear is that a successful change effort requires sound leadership. The type of leadership envisioned in the river model is not that of one strong person leading a charge. Rather, it is a leadership that is shared across team members. Susan further explains what this looks like during her keynote address. In all of this, leadership is critical. You are all here because you are leading, you are participating in various projects. There are people on your campuses like a provost or a dean or a department chair who are what we might call positional leaders. They have a position, a title that identifies them as a leader. Those individuals, I believe, have a responsibility as well as an opportunity to support and enable your work. So they should not stand by passively, but they should be engaged in your work. They're an important partner. Other kinds of leaders, which is most of you in this room, people without maybe a leader title, like dean or chair, you might be project manager, program director, whatever, those are good titles. I might refer to you as more informal or influential leaders. And you all have also a responsibility and an opportunity to act. And it is the combination of those two kinds of leaders that is when everything works best. When all the kinds of leaders and, and people working together are in fact collaborating, where leaders and followers are interchangeable, lots of multiple perspectives are involved, and there's a very engaged environment. For teams seeking to affect systemic institutional change with regard to problems in teaching and learning mathematics, the process is complex. But we have a model, a model that recognizes the living and flowing nature not only of our institutions, but of the problems themselves. By drawing on the expertise of a diverse team of individuals united by a shared vision, addressing a shared challenge, and committed to measuring and evaluating success and persisting when things don't go according to plan, that team will, in the long run, make things better. As Dr. Elrod says during her keynote at the Mathematics Teacher Education Partnership meeting, it really does take a village. To make this kind of thing happen, to make the complicated projects that you're all working on happen, it's not one person, it's not even a small group. It's a village of people of all kinds and types in your institution working together to make it happen. For more information on Dr. Elrod's work related to affecting institutional change that increases student success in STEM disciplines, or about the work of the Mathematics Teacher Education Partnership, please see the links in our show notes. Thanks.